Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of Ready and Able, a podcast made by teens for the teens. I'm Ita Chodretsky, and tonight we have with us Rabbi Eli Estrin, who is a longtime shliach of the Rebbe, with experience in areas ranging from Chabad on campus, Olive Institute, and is currently a chaplain in the Air Force. Welcome, Rabbi Estrin, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us tonight. Truly a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So to start off, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, I guess start my all the way back. I was born in the Hasidic bastion of Providence, Rhode Island. Um, my parents are Bali Chuva. They became from in Cleveland, Ohio, in the early seventies. They moved to Providence before there was a shliach there. I actually found out recently that my father complained to the rabbi there was no shliach there, and this is an incredible little story about the Balchuva's chutzpah. Um, they complained that there was no shliach, and they get a call from my father. Got a call from Rabbi Chodakov, and this is 1975. And Rabbi Chodakov said, "There's a shliach ready to move to one of two cities. You need to convince the Rebbe, write a letter to the Rebbe, convince the Rebbe why the Rebbe should send a shliach to Providence." So I don't know about you guys, but if I got a, and it's a, 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 what do you say? Where, where do you go with this? <laughs> my father wrote something because it's unbelievable. He wrote to the rabbi, he said, Rebbe, your shver left nitsutzois in Providence that still need to be cleaned up. Yeah, yeah because yeah. there was a shliach. Rabbi Yitzhak David Groner had been sent to Providence in the 40s, and he left after several years. There was a whole thing. There was, they started a school, and the school was taken over by Misnagdim. It was a whole, whole story. But he had the chutzpah to write that to the rabbi, and immediately Rabbi Laufer, who's the shliach to Rhode Island, got sent to, to yeah. Rhode Island. Um, so, so that's quite remarkable. My father is, uh, somewhat well-known as the author of the original Mendy and the Gailam. Uh, that was a product of Providence of several of the few Lubavitchers that were in Providence and Shazak Zirkin. Um, and, um, and then we moved to Pittsburgh when I was turning 10, um, around right before Tishrei of Toshin Nun. So I went to, you know, Pittsburgh, and then afterwards went to Yeshiva Nights Stroll, married my wife, Chayrachel Karp from Cincinnati. She was born in Sharon, she was born in Cornites actually, but uh, grew up in Sharon, Massachusetts. Family later moved to Cincinnati. Um, and we wanted to, we wanted to deal with youth. We, we really wanted to, Shlichos was absolute. We wanted to go out as fast as we possibly could. We had uh, no friends in Crenites. We we're not interested in living in Crenites. Um, so we decided quickly that we're going to move out onto campus. And we actually moved out onto Schlichus at the University of Washington, <coughs> excuse me, before our first wedding anniversary. And we oh, were on campus, yeah. And we were we were gung-ho. We were on campus for 13 years. And um, Baruch Hashem, you know, that was a, a uh, quite, you know, it's it's a, an incredible shlichus because you look back at it and you see families. I spoke to a guy today who's, uh, who's from, and, you know, never forget the first time he came to our Chabad house with Simchas Torah, and he was dancing through the streets and he had an absolute blast and Baruch Hashem, he has... He has a family and lives in Eretz Israel right now, and you know that kind of thing. It's really, really special. Chabad and campus work is also very, very challenging. 
Um, but one of the things that you're always trying to do, especially on campus, is trying to make that connection and, and connect to the students where they are. Uh, which is, it's difficult because on the one hand, of course, you have to stay hecher. You know, you have to be higher. You have to represent values. But at the same time, you have to work with the world um, that is the campus world. They have to work with the students where they are. You have to talk to them in the way that they need it. So it's a very, very, very strange balancing act uh, for Chabad campus. We used to call it our shlichus as lechatchila b'dieved. That was the... Uh, that was the whole deal. But one of the things that, that I found was that some of our highest caliber students were students who were coming from the military or joining the military afterwards. They were people who had very strong values and they understood rules. You know, on the other hand, the other students really didn't understood, understand values. They didn't understand rules. Um, and you know, to them, these things didn't really make a difference. But those military or the people who were more connected with the military um, had very strong, uh, like I said, values. When you say, mm -hmm. sorry to interrupt you. When you say rules, do you mean rules as in they're easier to take orders without understanding or they just had a better understanding of things without having to really be explained them in depth? It's more that there's there's a system, and they understand that there's a system. Uh, for for most of the college students, you know, especially living out in liberal uh, Seattle, it would you know you can do whatever you want. There's no system. There's no right. There's no wrong. There's no okay. This is the way you do it. In the military, you're taught a right way to do things, and there's a wrong way of doing things, and that's the way it goes. So yes, there's an element of bittel involved in that, and that's that's of course an important part of the conversation. And I think you know now that you bring that up, I want to point that out. That what people think about bittel is incorrect. Bittel people think is like okay, stop, don't ask questions, and just do. Right. Right. Many times wrong. you're told that in school. That's yes, we're all taught that in school, and I still can't stand it when people tell me because it's wrong. What bittel is, is that you're buying into something bigger than yourself. And so therefore, it's no longer about you. It's about something bigger than yourself. So there's a big difference between don't ask questions and do what you're told. On the other hand, versus something that, listen, you may not understand it right now, but by tapping into this, you're part of something bigger. Oh, well, wow. it's definitely a different spin on how we're normally taught the idea of that's exactly. because it's a lot easier for teachers to tell you don't ask questions and do what you're told because they've got 30 people in the class and, you know, and and everybody's a teenager and, you know, and we love teenagers. Don't, don't worry, <laughs> but but we know what teenagers are. And, and I was a teenager once as well, as much as I try to uh, forget those yeah, those experiences. Um, you know, but the fact of the matter is, is that, that that's where teachers are coming from and you got to forgive them for being, you know, having to deal with what they have to deal with. But when you look at the etsem of what it's all about, <clears throat> and I can tell you that this is something really, you know, I began to understand much deep, more deeply when I joined the military and that Bittel is 
it's not about you. It's something about some something much bigger than yourself. And you have to let go of yourself in order to be able to tap into this this bigger this bigger experience or the bigger value, the bigger goal, the bigger achievement. And that's that's what that's all about. But the, my students are what brought me into uh, the military. Um, you know, my wife and I were, you know, as a Chabad campus, especially, you're always looking for a couple of bucks. Um, but we thought that, you know, between the a little bit of financial help along with a little bit of the training that we'd be able to get along with to be able to the uh, opportunity to connect with these students in this unique way, we thought that military chaplaincy would be really interesting. So when the Aleph Institute sued the United States Army to be able to allow one of our student, one of our uh, chaplains to be able to serve because he has a beard, um, you know, they they won that court case. And as soon as the Department of Defense allowed beards in the military that day, my wife and I went to a recruiter to ask, uh, to ask, you know, about the opportunity and to look into it. We had no idea. And this is really one of those amazing things where, where the Abishta put puts things where you have no idea why, why you're heading this direction and, and where you're going. We thought this would be a side gig. And now because of this, this is my full-time shlichos. So it was like the Abishta was preparing us for the next level of shlichos. And, and that's really, uh, you know, a remarkable, remarkable uh, element of Ashgachabrat is that, that my wife and I still look at each other and just shake our heads and say, wow, and I can't believe that this happened in this kind of way. So you wouldn't have never imagined that you would have gone down this path? like No, no. 20 years not, ago? Not the slightest. It, you know, my wife and I were laughing about it because among other things, the things that we, you know, did on campus is, is my wife started a Jewish sorority to be able to try to get, we wanted to try to get Jewish boys and Jewish girls to date. And so she helped recreate the sorority. So we were laughing about it, but I never thought that I'd be married to a sorority girl and she never thought she'd be <laughs> married to an officer in the United States military. So you really have no idea where you're going to end up and where you're going Sounds to go. Sounds very typical American. That sounds <laughs> strangely when you put it like that, <laughs> and so not at the exact same time. Yes, that's correct. It's it's, it's really weird. Um, but uh, yeah. <clears throat> so, as some of us may or may not know, you and your wife Chai Rachel um, are the authors of a book of medicine, miracles, and mindsets, where where you talk about the tremendous experiences that you and your family had gone through. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about this and what it is that you actually did go through? Sure. So Baruch Hashem, we have six children. Um, my youngest has complex congenital heart disease and cerebral palsy. And uh, the broader experience was began with the diagnosis in utero of his cardiac uh, defects. And then through the experience of the basically the first four years of his life, uh, the ups and the downs um, of of that of that experience. And just to kind of give a little bit of a um, kind of the nutshell of, of the story. Um, we there are three heart defects that are considered critical that need need immediate um, surgical correction. And 
we were informed at 30 weeks gestation that this baby had three of the 12. And so therefore the likelihood of survival was virtually nil. And to explain what those three are, first of all, and every Lubavitcher loves this, um, he only has a right ventricle. And, oh, a tzaddik. And I say, no, he has a disease. <laughs> yes, two um, nefeshalikas. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, you, I, the, 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 the limud, the hira that we pick from that is basically you need a nefesh bahamas. It's, it's, it's an important part of the system. Um, and nowadays, his siblings will be happy to tell you that he is not a tzaddik. <laughs> they, they will, <laughs> if you ask them, trust everyone, the siblings to give that answer. That's, uh, he, yeah, thank God, he's 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 quite quite the character, um, but tzaddik. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> the other two problems were actually more intense than the than that. Well, you know, half a heart, whatever. You know, the left the left side, left ventricle is overrated. Um, and the other problems were bigger than that, and that that was that there was really no functional heart lung connection. The veins that carry oxygenated blood from the lungs went into the liver, and there was no mechanism no valve to be able to pump um, blood from the heart to the lungs. And so considering all those things, it was, you know, it was, we were basically for the next nine weeks to make a long story short, we were asked at every OB visit. So have you called the Hever Kadisha? Wasn't that so sweet? They need to remind us every single time. So it was, it was very, very intense dealing with that on a, on a regular basis. Um, you know, and we had to we had to dip deep into our reservoir of of chassidus in order to be able to get through the entire experience. So, for example, you know, when you're talking to doctors and they keep asking you, "Did you so have you made funeral plans?" and you're like, "Okay, well, chassidus tells me good and they keep telling you telling me like looking at you like you're totally insane for not making these funeral plans. That's very very difficult." And so my wife and I had to sit there and kind of discuss, okay, how do we apply in this situation? We don't want to be delusional. We have to recognize the situation that we're up against, but at the same time, we know that what the Rebbeim says is, is, truth, is truth. And how do we apply that? <clears throat> and what we came to an understanding is that is navoida. And an avoida means that you're actually actively working to remind yourself and to bring yourself there. And that's work. And so the fact that we didn't feel it on every single moment, that's, that was fine. That was part of, that's part of the experience. But we had, to, we had to physically and emotionally work to feel those, to, to, to get to those feelings. And the way we applied it was we, we asked the doctors to, to prepare for the birth as a live birth so that whatever would happen, we would be um, available to, uh, to receive. If the Eberster wants to give a miracle, that the Eberster would give us you know, that, that opportunity to be able to receive the miracle. So we did that. We, you know, several heroes of the Rebbe that we tried to, to you know, kind of fulfill you know, in, in that kind of waiting game period. Uh, when he was born, we had a Jewish doctor who we thought was a Rafa Yadid. He's not from, and that was part of the mistake that we didn't understand what the Rebbe wanted in terms of Rafa Yadid. And, um, and basically, 
this guy, <coughs> excuse me, this guy prevented us from getting care from Children's Hospital. He told Children's Hospital that we refused surgery. So we were sitting there waiting for this baby to die for five days, holding the baby, singing with him, um, you know, saying till him, and at the same time trying to figure out what we're going to do with it. And, you know, if I don't know if you can possibly imagine what it was like, but it was completely terrifying every time we went to sleep because you didn't know if you'd wake up with a dead baby in your hands. It was just, it was, it was that kind of intensity. I'll make a long story short. Thursday, we left the hospital and uh, went home on hospice care. And I woke up at Friday at four o'clock in the morning, basically realizing that, that I need to make phone calls to get the skin to, into the hospital. So eventually I got back in touch with Children's and Children's said, hey, we were waiting for you the entire time. Come right now. So it was really, uh, um, and I'm really, I'm, I'm skipping out all the excitement of the story just for the purpose of this podcast. Um, you I know, mean, anybody's... by all means, everyone would find excitement interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I've told this story for Beisrifka Shabbaton, you know, the full story can take uh you know three four hours so we're, we're not going to go through all that um anybody wants can of course go online and and, and uh find videos uh of me telling it chabad houses on zoom and, and that kind of thing yeah. or, um, or obviously by the book Adraba, Adraba. um but really the the you know that was the first the first or the second part of the the experience was really those five days of of really kind of holding on by a thread or even less than a thread. Um, and when people ask us, how did we get through that experience? The answer is you, when you're in that kind of traumatic situation, you don't have time to think about it. You can only think about the very next decision you need to make. Um, and, and that's all you can't think of anything more than that. You're, you're just, you can only focus on, on, on the moment and what what will come immediately after the moment, and that was how we got through that. Wow. After that came, um, uh, I think he's been through nine or ten surgeries since then. Um, you know, cardiac arrest somewhere in between there. That was also you know a massive miracle. The fact that he survived the cardiac arrest. There happened to be a nurse in his room at two thirty in the morning. She happened to notice his color. She happened to be, she, she called a code blue and there happened to be a respiratory therapist in the room next door. So they started CPR on him uh, probably as he was going into cardiac arrest and, and, and whatnot. So he does Some have some protests going on. I, huge Nissim, huge. So he's, he's, you know, he's in, in uh, kindergarten here at LEC, Lubavitch Educational Center here in Miami. And he's probably the most popular kid in the entire school um, because he has this gigantic smile and he has a real character. Um, he loves talking to people and making people laugh. And, and, and he does this even though he has a walker. In other words, he can't walk by himself even though he's almost seven years old. Um, he has all sorts of other physical you know, difficulties because of that cerebral palsy. But his attitude in life is, is unbelievable. And you wouldn't think that a seven-year-old, or he's almost seven, would, you know, a six-year-old or a four-year-old or a two-year-old, because he's always had this attitude, would be this, this attitude of pure and absolute joy. And he doesn't 
get stuck on the small stuff. Does this come from, like, does he comprehend the situation that he's in and his condition? And, or does he just not comprehend it and it adds to his, his I, it's, it's a funny question. You know, that's a really funny question and, and it's hard to say. Um, the question is, what does comprehend mean? Does he, he, he certainly is fully aware, aware of it. He's, he is the definition of the peanut gallery. You think I'm thinking I'm having a nice conversation with my wife and, and suddenly he pipes up from, you know, from the back and basically <laughs> make a comment about whatever it is. I was like, who asked you? <laughs> you know, he's one of those. Things. Um, and his comments are usually funny or, you know, somewhat insightful. So he's, he's very smart. Um, so, you know, he obviously knows that he's, you know, he can't walk like everybody else. And it breaks your heart when he asks something. It's like, I can't jump, you know? Yeah. And it's just, it, it, it hurts when you hear your child say something like that and they physically can't do it. Um, so, so he understands that, but at the same time, there seems to be an attitude and I'm not sure how much of this is, is a, is a, uh, uh, a characteristic choice. You know, that's, that's the character that Hashem gave him or whether it's, it's a, you know, it's an added attitude that he just, he somehow developed within his own personality or within, you know, whatever it is, he doesn't seem to care. In other words, not that he doesn't care. He wants to walk. He wants to teach himself how to walk, but he doesn't spend the time complaining about the fact that he can't. So in a he, sense, this would be the idea in his sense of how Hashem gives each person the capabilities to overcome their struggles and challenges. So his attitude, in a sense, aids that process of overcoming. A thousand percent. He has... And this is where it can drive his siblings crazy because basically if they complain about anything, all my wife and I have to say, well, Nissy doesn't complain. We try not to use that too much because there's only so, so many times, you know, it's like, that's like the last card that you can pull out as a parent. You know, it's like, you know, but, but it's an important thing. It's like, look, you're sitting here whining about the fact that, you know, that, that there's nothing to eat when there's a full refrigerator and, Go find yourself something to eat. Well, Nissi doesn't eat. Um, you know, this doesn't seem, you know. Nissi eats just, out of a feeding tube? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he has a feeding tube. He's like very, very, very small amounts. You know, but I'm just, that was, that's a, not even such a good example. But the point of the matter is that, is that it's really remarkable. And it's something that we have to learn that he just, he, he would rather his attitude in general would rather be to just make this life into a party. And that's very that's, good attitude. Yeah. It's just, his attitude is to laugh with people and to, and to crack jokes and to, and to, and to you, you see him walking around Shul in his, in his bright yellow Walker. And you can tell where he is in Shul based on the smiles of the people around. Wow. Uh, these are not Very my beautiful. yeah because he goes around and he and he'll make eye contact with everybody because he's waiting for somebody to to 
to smile back. This is what he gets a kick out of. He likes making people happy. And so he has an attitude that that is really, you know, it's 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 like a superpower of, of, of sorts. Um, and that's something that we all can learn. And it's like we try to tell that some of the, the his, his younger, his older, younger siblings, um, like, look, you know, he gets you know, people just give him stuff. They give him cars. They give him lollipops. He doesn't eat lollipops. They give him lollipops anyway. Uh, there's a guy gave him five bucks. Very considerate. Oh my gosh! The guy, there was a guy who gave him five bucks in the, at the elevator the other day. I was like, "Why'd you give him five bucks?" He goes, "That smile." Oh, and so I, <laughs> I said, I said to my other kids, I was like, "You know, if you walk around smiling at people, making people laugh, maybe you'll get all those lollipops and that kind of stuff." Uh, we were at we were at the Shabbaton, and and there was a Shabbaton for special needs parents. One hundred twenty families from from Muncie. Um, there were four Lubavitchers there, three Lubavitchers there, everybody else, Satmer, Square, you name it, right? Right. Um, Nissi was harassing people the entire Shabbos to get a strangle. <laughs> <laughs> well, guess what? That's the Lubavitch kid to do that. That's, guess what? Some guy who's like, I have an old strangle. And he shipped his old Strymel to Nissi. <laughs> As Box comes a week later, we figured he's what he goes. He's, there's no way he's going to. And Box comes later, a week later, an authentic Strymel. That he... Now we know what Nissi is going to wear for Purim. That's that's correct. <laughs> but, you know, but I try to tell people, you know, you want something. You can start with a smile and you'll probably, you know, Simcha Peres Geder is, is a really good tactic. It, it really, Definitely it really is. works. So, so that's, you know, on the one hand, that's, that's the beauty of our life. On the one hand, we have a richer, more beautiful uh, element of life. It's, but at the exact same time, it, I, you know, I need to be honest, it's, it's also more exhausting. You know, you have a child who can't do anything by himself. You know, you, we have to literally get him out of bed, get him dressed every single morning, you know, get him fully, fully into, you know, clothes from head to toe. His splints is what he got his is uh you know everything like that make sure that he has you know his medication every single day carry him to the car you know he can't do any that kind of stuff himself he just doesn't have the fine or uh the fine motor skills or the the gross motor skills to be able to to do that kind of thing um so it's 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 certainly not easy but you know since when was life meant to be easy um, so it's, it's, you know, something that we're constantly dealing with and constantly trying to, to learn more about how we can give him more independence and try to figure out more unique ways of dealing with it. And, and it's, it's, it's always, it's always a challenge, but he teaches us that, you know, just because it's a challenge doesn't mean that you need to be miserable about it. And I think that's a very important lesson. Is there any part of Hasidus or some kind of teaching of the Rebbe that you found helped you through all this struggle? Uh, how many hours do we have on this thing? <laughs> as much as you like. You, you, you. When you go through something like this, you can't, even, you can't even begin to think about something like this without the Rebbe. What would we do? There's, there, there was, there's, there's not even, there's no beginning. Um. You know, but just one particular idea that I said to somebody 
this past Shabbos. And it's an idea I, I put it in the book because, you know, we call the book of medicine, miracles, and mindsets because of the fact that medicine is one thing, miracles, of course, you know, the whole story, but mindsets are what got us through. You know, there's certain Nikudais and Chassidus that absolutely, absolutely got us through. <clears throat> so a guy saw me at the Kiddush the other day and he asked, you know, he had a couple of chimes and I know that he's been through some some health challenges with his children and he knows me and he said he said you know i've got an issue you know the abishar puts the jewish people through 210 years of 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 Gullus mitzrayim and then you know basically promises they're going to get out it's still another year before they get out through the, all the makas and everything else and there's all sorts of problems even within the makas themselves and then they finally get get to to uh, to the Amsuf and the Abishir trapped them. They're trapped, and then they're basically the fact that they saw later is complaining this at the other. They're they're punished for being. What do you want, Abishir? You put them through all of this stuff, you know, laws up, <laughs> right? Right. And you know, he said, I know that you understand this because you're a guy who's been through challenges, you know. But basically, Abishir, you put them through challenge after challenge after challenge, and then you say, well, are, you know, are they are going they going to respond to my challenges? I said, uh, you need to learn um, the Gimel. He said, what do you mean? I said, the word there that the Rebbe explains over there is something incredible. The Rebbe explains, the words, what's the word for challenge in Hebrew? Nisayan. The word Nisayan comes from the same Shoresh as the word Nes, not just miracle, but also the term Nisi, to lift up. Arim Nisi, to lift up my banner. I, I lift up my banner. Right. And the Rebbe said, that's the purpose of an Esoyen is to lift yourself up and to realize to, that the purpose is to bring yourself higher. What is the purpose of bringing yourself higher? What, 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 what are you, how are you trying to get higher? He said, well, what's the point of an S? What's the purpose of a miracle? The whole purpose of a miracle is to show that inard mavade, that Hashem really is running the show. So when you realize that the whole Nisoyan is for the purpose of showing that inard mavade, you accomplish the purpose of the Nisoyan, and then the Nisoyan disappears. Wow. So that's a very that's powerful right. point. Yes. What? But 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 I should learn the mind, <laughs> you know, like basically just and argue something you never learned. That's exactly it, you know. But basically, the idea is so powerful and so important, and I'm so thankful that I learned that before this entire experience because I was reflecting on that during this experience. Was I a spiritual uh, on a spiritual high during that experience? No, but I knew that that was that was the going that was the direction. I knew that right. was the goal. And so that was, so there wasn't any time wasted spent on why me, any kind of complaining like that, not for my wife, not for myself, because it's just, we didn't have the energy for it. The only thing was like, okay, we have to accomplish what the Abishar wants us to accomplish in this situation. And, you know, that's taking all of our, our, our energy, all of our emotional energy. And, and that's, that's what the focus is. So that concept in particular is, very much stayed with us through throughout and throughout the other challenges as well. You know, we wish, you know, he'd be able to work, walk faster. We wish all sorts of things. 
you know, we wish those those challenges would would disappear. Well, that's not the way it works. And and you know, and we daven that these things become easier. And Bez Hashem, they will. But you know, but but the concept really, really drives us on a regular basis. And I'm just putting two and two together. Um, so his name is Nissi. Was he named after this mimer? Excellent. Um, he's actually, that's his nickname. His full name is Nisanel. And the reason why he was named Nisanel before he was born, we chose that, my wife chose that name. Because um, unfortunately, the minag is that if a baby is not going to survive, the general approach is that the Heva Kadisha names the baby. And just, to, you know, to take the pressure off of the family, things like that. And the family can name the baby if they want. So we were talking about this and, and we decided in naming our children has been something that's been very, very special. We decided that we did want to name our child. And my wife was like, okay, what, what feeling do I want to have no matter what happens? And she decided that she wanted to have the feeling that Hashem gives, that whatever it is, the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever it is, how long as he lives, as, as good as life is, or whatever it is, is from Hashem. And so she chose the name Nisano. And then when when he was born, we were like, okay, you know, he's alive. We might as well give him a nickname. The question is, what nickname do we give him? Uh, Netanel kind of sounded a little bit cuter, but we decided to go with Nisano because then we could give him the nickname Nissi because that's what we were asking for. And so, you know, so the, he ended up with that nickname, which confuses everybody in preschool because they're like, okay, how do we teach him to spell his name? Nun Yud Samach Yud? Or... You know, <laughs> Or like, okay, Nunyud Samachyud is fine, and we'll 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 figure the rest out later. We'll go from there. Exactly. Um, so it's it's it is remarkable. Um, you know, it, it is a special name, and that was actually very funny because it was a preschool project where they had to they had to write their name and why their name was given, <laughs> and oh, you wow. know, and my wife was like, ah, uh, <laughs> trauma. <laughs> That's exactly. Drama dump on the teachers. Yeah, exactly. So we we kind of fluffed it out a little bit in this little little paragraph for a bunch of six year olds, you know, so you wouldn't have to cup there. So when I was born, I was going to die, you know. <laughs> just, <laughs> That's one way to go about it. Yeah, yeah just uh, so, but but yeah, it's it's a it's it's a special name and 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 it means. Uh, you know, it means a lot, and uh, and the name nickname Nissi really, it really it, it fits him very very well. This whole hearing the story of his name really just proves to me this like idea of the nivua that's given to the parents when they name their child. This, very, hearing very, these kind of stories always like sticks out to me. Very impressive. Very much. Very much. Every one of our kids is uh, you know the. The name is is very very deeply connected with with uh, with their personality and it, and it's 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 an incredible thing to see. Um, it's it's a it's a special thing to look at your children and say, oh my gosh, I had a. You know, there's sometimes the people like maybe I should have given you a different name, <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. It's it, the way it works is that you're given the nevua about this child, not the opposite. So, right. that, uh, but it is, is something special. So on the note of children, how did your children react to their 
brother, did they hear prenatally or already once the child was born? Prenatally, they knew the that uh, he was that the doctors expected him to be sick. Um, my oldest two at the time were eleven and ten, or turning ten and turning nine. So those three were the ones that we're obviously most concerned about. The other two were six and three. So they had much less understanding of what was going on. Um, and we spoke to High Lifeline um, about what we should do. And they gave us a piece of advice, which, which, which was absolutely critical. And everybody should know this piece of advice. And that is that children, the most important thing for children is stability. And so if you can create stability in any circumstance, kids will be fine. And that, that was something that we really uh, aimed at. And that was like, a, you know, one of these important, important uh, ideas. We set everything up in that kind of way to keep everything as stable as possible. So <clears throat> the first day after he was born, the plan was to not tell the kids about, about their sibling until after he passed away. Um, that was the plan. But when he kept on living, we had to kind of, what they call audible, basically figured out again. So I came home the first night. So this was Monday night. And I took the oldest two and I told them, in short, the story of the Baal Shem Tov and the, uh, the, the childless couple that had a ch that he gave them a bracha and then the baby passed away right after the upturnish. And he explained to them that this was a very high neshama, only came for a certain amount of time. I said, there's some neshamas that are only supposed to come into this world for a certain amount of time. That was an extremely difficult um, conversation to had. You know, basically I took the oldest one, left him crying, took the second one, left her crying. And at that point I was emotionally shot. You know, left the two crying children in my mother-in-law's hands. I was like, Ima, I'm out of here. See you later. She's like, you need to talk to number three. I was like, no can do, I'm, I'm out. Um, so that was that was the original situation. Um, but the fact that my in-laws were were you know at at the house dealing with them was was obviously absolutely critical. Um, and it was very very special to be able to, of course, tell them Friday afterwards that oh by the way the doctors figure out they actually can do something for your brother. Um, so <laughs> that was like nice. so then, scratch all that. Yeah, yeah. But kids are happy to scratch that kind of stuff. Although. My daughter, Shane, I was in 11th grade now. Um, you ask her about that conversation, um, you you get a painful smile. Um, you know, that's that's not exactly... Imagine, that's not an easy thought. Yeah. Remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so during those five days, they wanted to visit the baby. They visited him once in the hospital. Uh, Thursday, when we came home, you know, they're all excited to meet their baby brother. And we were scared like anything because we didn't know, you know, how long he was going to live and that kind of thing. So they got to hold him for a couple seconds, and that, you know, but basically for the most part, they were not as much involved. Later, once he was in the hospital, then they became very involved. They used to visit him almost every single day in the hospital. They come, they, you know, they surround his, his, his bed and holding his hand and saying shmau with him before going back and back uh, to go back to bed and things like that. And we we really tried to make them as much part of the experience as possible. 
um, that they were part of the refua, you know, that they were part of of helping their brother get better. Um, and it was a it was a party. It became such a party that um, you know, six or five kids running down the hallways of the ICU. Um, you know, the nurses always, oh, the kids are back, you know, that kind of thing, to the extent like, that the, finally kids who are active and alive. Yeah, and 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 you know, excited and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so the Seattle Children's Hospital made a brochure called Visiting Your uh Your Sibling in the ICU. And they featured my kids. And so it's very funny because it looks like a Tzivis Hashem book. I was going to ask. <laughs> you know, uh, three years Another old, one he, of the Tzivis Hashem pamphlets. Exactly. His yarmulke is perched like this on his head. His <laughs> sisters are flying. Shayna and Nomi are obviously wearing, you know, skirts and tights and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, it's it's very, very cute because it's it looks like it's a from book when it's Seattle Children's Hospital. So it's it's a uh, it's that itself was was funny, but part of the Kiddush Hashem, I guess that that was part of the experience. I'm not quite sure, um, but they were very very much part of it. And and nowadays they're part of it because they don't have any other choice. <laughs> he's he's right. central to the family, and and somebody has to you know bring him to the table. Somebody has to play with him. Somebody has to um, you know help him in whatever whatever he does. So that's um so that's but we try as much as possible to make it positive everything everything and that's again getting back to the things that the rabbi taught us the point is to twist everything into a positive way and to try to you know acknowledge the fact that things are not the same as as they used to be and they're not the same as as you know now nowadays we can barely remember back seven years ago um but you know, so we recognize that there's, you know, that there are difficulties based on, on the things that we, we don't have. But but at the same time, um, we also try to focus on all the positive. Right. How did you find a balance between um, raising your other children, like maintaining that stability while still going through your own, quote unquote, grief and struggle like that you were going through personally um this is exactly get right back to what we spoke about before Bittle. it's not about you um the more we would have stuck into our own grief the less we would have been functional as parents and the less we would have been able to take care of him as 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 a child as a as a sick baby um so you know we don't think of Bittle because it again it has such a bad rap because of how all the teachers basically try to use it as a weapon. Um, but when you, when you think about it in that kind of way, it's like, okay, what's my job here? What's my responsibility? Then it changes everything. And this is, this is, I'm, I'm going to say this. Um, I can say this as a chaplain. I can say this as, you know, as a father. Um, I looked at everything as, as what was my responsibility? Who am I here? I had to do something that other shluchim might not have been able to do, um, you know. And and I'm not going to judge anybody, and I hope nobody judges me in terms of what the decision that I had to make. But we decided to, that we could not do any programming during that time. We could not 
focus on students. We were just too stuck in, in taking care of this child because my, the Rebbe told, told people many times that your Iker Shlichos is, is your family. Um, that, you know, that was my attitude. And so therefore I had to focus on my wife and my children to be able to, uh, that was my, that's my Iker Shlichos, to make sure that they were stable, to make sure they were healthy, to make sure they were okay. Um, so, but the irony is because of the fact that I was focused on them, I was not stuck in my own grief. I was not stuck in my own hole. I w- you know, otherwise it just becomes a downward spiral. Um, and that's what it was. It was really, we were, we were, we were focused on our responsibilities as parents. And I'll give you a better example, a very specific example that was a choice. So of course we were on campus, so we didn't have a shul nearby to be able to go to. So on campus, whenever we did Kabbalah Shabbos, I always just sang through the entire Kabbalah Shabbos from L'chun Ranana all the way through Olenu, singing through L'chadaydi, we danced with a couple of the students who were there or whatever it was. So when we stopped, students stopped coming to us because we weren't actively inviting them over and they just, you know, they just, they forget that you exist. Um, so I ended up being just Shabbos by ourselves. And of course, at the end of these weeks, you feel completely exhausted. Who, who has the energy to sing? Right? Right. But I realized if I don't sing, if I don't do the entire Kabbalah Shabbos, if I don't sing through all Shalom Aleichem and Eishas Chayim, if I don't sing the Gunim at the table or sing the silly Shabbos songs with the kids, whatever the silly songs are, you know, whatever they want to sing, then they're not going to have Shabbos. And if I cause them to lose Shabbos because I'm exhausted, then I am killing them in their circumstance right now. Well, so in hindsight, looking back, realizing that, that I came to that conclusion, that was the secret to the balancing act. Um, I, I was able to also help myself not get stuck. It's definitely a very big pill to swallow. Yeah. So because I wasn't focused on my own stuff, capital S, you know, therefore I was able to actually fix my stuff because I wasn't focused on it. And now having seen, I mean, I, I have I have a regular kvios of reading a letter or two of the Rebbe every night. And so Baruch Hashem, I've got, got I just started um, so I've been doing this for years and years and years. So you see the Rebbe's advice to people so often. And one of the critical pieces of advice is don't fight with these feelings. Just focus on something else. And that's exactly what happened here. And that's where the success was. Would you say that there were any points that you were in denial because you tried to shove it all away? Nope. No, we were very, very well aware. Um, we were constantly trying to to come to grips with with the situation and and to keep ourselves uh, above water. Uh, so we were we were not in denial at all. Um, we were very much aware and and just trying to deal with it with the tools that we've been given. And every every chassid has been given these these tools. It's, this is not this is not something unique to us. I guess not always is it 
so easy to find how we were given those tools. It's not easy. Nobody's saying it. it wasn't easy for us either. Right now we're talking seven years later, you know, so it's always, it's always in the summary. It's always the, the easier part that the, the difficulty is, is the recognition that this is an avoida. But as soon as you define it as an avoida, it changes perspective. You know, as soon as you know that this is a challenge, if we were told when we're being given a challenge, when we're, when we're not, how much easier would that be? Right? Yeah. So that's exactly it. We have to define it ourselves. And the Rebbeim give us those capabilities and they tell us, look, you're being given a challenge, but the challenge itself is an assignment for the purpose of something deeper and so once you realize, once you identify as a challenge, then you say, okay, all right, I need to do these steps in order to be able to get past this. It's a very deep way of looking at it. Or not so much. It, 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 it's, it's just, um, it's, it's all about framing. We're right. used to, we're used to looking at ourselves and just going day by day and just wanting everything to go our way. But when we when we look at ourselves, we realize that we are a neshama. We have a an inner purpose. We have a relationship with Hashem that's an expectation that we're meant to do certain things and to try to succeed at them as best as we possibly can. Not to be somebody else, but basically to deal with our stuff, our particular circumstances. As soon as we define that, then we have a much greater capability of being able to succeed. If we just define ourselves as, okay, well, I'm just an American. I just do my, my thing. I pay my taxes and I go and, you know, that, well, that's, that's just waiting for, for kicking the bucket after 120. But as a chassid, our attitude is that I have a purpose. I have a shlichus. I have something to do. I have something to accomplish. And there's always something to accomplish in life. So when you get a challenge, you have to redefine, okay, what is the purpose of this challenge? Where am I supposed to go? How am I supposed to react to this challenge? Because my job is to, to serve Hashem. That's my job. That's why I was created. That's what I'm here for. It's definitely transforming the way I'm thinking right now. Good. Hearing this. <laughs> but... So you definitely had a very big support from, you know, teachings of the Rebbe and, you know, right, I'm assuming, talking to the Rebbe. Um, did, and you didn't have much of a support from the medical team, as you saw with your Rebbe you did, that kind of turned his back on you. Did you find that there was anyone else that was there to support you? Our Chabad and Campus Shluchim were phenomenal. Um, specifically, Chayrochel had some of her, she she went to a, uh, or actually the women came to her, some of her friends from high school. And this is really beautiful because, of course, I'm speaking to high schoolers, don't realize how special some of these relationships eventually will be. And my wife just had a her 20th uh, year high school reunion with a 10 of her friends, and they spent a beautiful Shabbos together, um, you know, just connecting as as only as only friends from, from high school can. So one of those also on campus, Chaya Shapiro from Flagstaff, Arizona, 
Um, she found out about things while Kherach was still pregnant. And she said to her husband, she, we need to do something about this. And her husband was like, what do we need to do? She's like, I don't know. So he decided that they were going to raise five thousand, five to $10,000 for us. And he called us and like, you know, is that okay? Like, sure. But at the same time, I was thinking like, what for? What are we going to use this, this $10,000 for? You know, Rahman al-Islan, in my voice, I didn't say this because I didn't want to, I didn't want to say it. But in my head, I was like, okay, is that going to pay for the Leviah? Like, you know what I'm saying? That that was the kind of circumstance. Um, they ended up scheduling a uh, charity campaign. And this is like the early days of charity campaigns when it was still, it wasn't, wasn't quite so popular. Um, and they didn't know when the baby was supposed to be born, but they scheduled it for the day my wife was induced. Oh, so wow. the Ashkacha wild. So while the baby was been, being born, I don't know how many people gave um, to that to that charity campaign. They ended up giving us $60,000. And that was basically how we survived that year. Um, you know, we had our regular donors, uh, you know, the people giving monthly. But between the monthly donors and that $60,000 that we got from from those those shluchim who made that uh, that charity campaign, that was how we got through that. So yeah, we talk about Chabad and campus uh, shluchim and shluchis are very 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 special group, and that was that was without question our biggest support group. Uh, we were using Facebook and WhatsApp um, to update people because part of our feeling about the whole thing was that this was a shlichus to show people how chassidim react to difficult circumstances um and you know and we people were people responding in huge huge ways and even even that i've been seeing other kind of difficult things that other people have gone through um you know so there were a lot of amazing things and a lot of a lot of got a tremendous amount of chizuk from the shluchim on the west coast in particular and the chabana campus shluchim um that was really really incredibly special so you were mentioning how you found that it became your shlichus. Did you, like, in a sense, like, you changed your shlichus route and made this a part of it? In what way did you, did it transform your shlichus? Like, you? It was com it was a complete change because, of course, first of all, I was dealing with people, you know, and 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 all that kind of thing before that. Um, and now I was just dealing with social media and, and WhatsApp and trying to present a certain approach to things. So that was then. But then, of course, with a baby that was this uh, fragile and, and complex, we knew that we couldn't do Chabana campus. And so we had to move um, somewhere to be able to have a support network, to have a, a fully functional school. And so that was when we moved to Miami. Originally, I was teaching here for about a year, um, but that was when I got my full-time shlichus nowadays with uh, with the Aleph Institute as shliach to Jews in the military. So it changed, you know, it ended up spurring a whole different area of shlichus uh, completely, you know, just in terms of, of, of the story putting us on a different path. But also in terms of the, the actual shlichus in terms of presenting the Rebbe's approach to medicine, that was one of the reasons why we wrote the book. 
you know, that we felt that that there's a certain approach that is that is dangerous and and you know in some cases even murderous in the medical world in terms of how they approach people and what the Rebbe told people about medicine and the Rebbe, how the Rebbe's approach to you know hospitals and doctors and everything like that is all about the humanity of medicine along with the humility to realize that Hashem is running the show and so we needed to, we felt a responsibility to try to present our story which kind of had a both worst case situation as well as a best case outcome as a result of all the surgeries and everything like that um but we felt that the story would 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 present the rebbe's approach to people in the medical world and baruch hashem you know we've received some beautiful beautiful responses from people in medicine um who feel that it expresses something that is oftentimes not not spoken about so that's very special to be able to to have that unique uh, ability to to touch people in that kind of way. When you say murderous um, concepts in medicine, you say very detrimental things that the modern medical teams are doing. You mean the idea that they're very much death obsessed rather than saving a life? Excellent. Yes, absolutely. Um, basically, it's you know hospitals are a business, and the way they look at at a patient is purely in terms of income. Um, and so therefore, as soon as this patient is blocking them from doing procedures on doing a different patient, they basically try to push the patient out. Um, so that means they try to cycle people into hospice or whatever it is, or pull the plug or things like that, when they feel like, oh, well, we can't do it anyway, um, as opposed to looking at the individual patient, um, which is much more... Um, you know, obviously, it's 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 the right thing to do, but in massive hospitals, they want to do things quick and you know basically systematic and again income, 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 um, and they they've lost sight of the morality of of what they do. And of course, there are individual doctors who are phenomenal, and there are um, there are people who are uh, nurses who are phenomenal. And there are even institutions, hospitals and whatnot that are that are amazing. But there's there is a huge problem in today's medical society because of how they what they look at at patients. So essentially what you're saying is that they make life a business transaction rather than something that's miraculous and spontaneous and not really so much based off of weirdly the, enough science. Yes, well, it's, the value of a human life is 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 can be very, very, very uh, debased very easily. Um, my wife's friend, her mother's 66, 67, not very old at all. Um, she's fought cancer for several years. She got pneumonia. They wanted to intubate her right away. And basically, it's like, look, my and my wife's friend, had read our book and so she knew that she needed to advocate she said you're not doing anything until i get there and i can see how my mother's doing but they were basically like look oh she had cancer so she's probably going to die anyway right now so might as well put it on on the you know and basically put her on on the breathing tube and then once they put her on the breathing tube it's just a short step afterwards to starting pressure the family that well she can't survive this anyway take her off and also the body doesn't react to that very well and oftentimes that itself is a 
a mechanism that begins the process to killing a person. Um, she fought and she won. And Baruch Hashem, her mother is still alive and well. Several months later, fought through pneumonia, got through it, and she's, you know, she's, she's, uh, she's, she keeps herself going. So this was just one of many, many, many. It's a, it's a, these things happen every single day. Um, and what, what we need to know, you know, what, you know, the people listening to this podcast need to know is that if you're ever dealing with somebody in the hospital, the important thing is to advocate, to speak to the doctors, to let them know that somebody cares and to let them know that somebody else is making the decisions, not just them, that, and that there has to be an involvement that is made by somebody who cares and somebody who can make the best decision for the patient, not the best decision for the doctors. And where did you find the courage to advocate against all these high-end professionals and doctors? Is that the spur of the moment, all the emotions coming out? or uh, A little bit of this, a little bit of that. I think some of my high school teachers would tell you that, that you know, I wasn't exactly a person to keep my mouth shut in high school. <laughs> Um, um, but you know, there's just, there's just a certain point where you have to put yourself again, Bittle, Bittle is not just don't ask questions. Bittle is sometimes also stand up, you know, where you have to stand up and say, um, you know, I, I don't, I can't stand for this. This is not okay. And it's, it's, it's the same Bittle. There's the same focus on what needs to be done. It's no longer about me. It's about something bigger than me. So Bittal is not necessarily always knowing that something is bigger than you, but sometimes letting something else be bigger than you. Like, yes, putting it above, let it overpower rather than just have it overpower. That's correct. That's correct. Bittal is a tool. It's not, it's not a submissiveness in a kind of letting go way. It's a tool, and it's and it's it's a hard tool. It's not an easy one. We're not again. Avodah means work. Um, you know, it needs to be activated. Um, and I'm not telling you things that that I've, you know, figured out a thousand percent. And but this is this is absolutely something that we need to do. Sometimes, you know, when I'm dealing with people, I need to remind myself to ask them to put on tefillin. You know, and in the, the friendly conversation, sometimes I forget to do that because I'm so busy wanting to have a relationship with them and wanting to be nice to them to show them about, hey, there's this guy who's really, really nice. I need to have Bittle and force myself to stand up and say, oh, I need to ask you about Tillin as well. You follow? Yeah. So that's that's Bittle, that's Bittle on the other side. That's not, that's again, that's not, don't ask questions. That's Bittle stand up. Um. You know, it's about something bigger than yourself. Stand up for what's bigger than yourself and make sure that this is, is presented properly. It's really cool hearing something that I've heard my entire life put in an entirely new light. I'm sure many other people are also pondering this now. So on a different note, um, aside for his, like, obviously you said his smile and, you know, his outstanding attitude and his tremendous like willpower to persevere against all odds would you be
be able to share a specific moment where you really found that Nissi inspired you specifically or your family? I I mean, well, I think I think there's one anecdote that I tell all the time, but it, it's very uh I guess representative of of the kinds of things that 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 you know he he his attitude and, and, and what you're talking about, his inspiration, so to speak, on a regular basis. He was about two and a half when he had a G tube placed in his stomach to be able to allow him to be able to eat through directly into his stomach. Before that, it went through his nose. So while we did that, we did that at the same time as his bris. So he was two and a half. He just had a G tube placed. He just had a bris. Uh, and uh, at some point, I picked him up within those, you know, week, two weeks afterwards. I don't remember exactly when it was. And the, the feeding tube got stuck on the chair and jerked at his stomach. So you can imagine you've got something in your side, your stomach, inside your stomach. And it pulls it. It could be. I can imagine. We can only imagine how painful it is. So he was two and a half, and he's crying. And obviously, you know, it's painful when any child cries, but especially a child who doesn't cry very often. So my wife puts him on her chest, and after about fifteen seconds, he picks his head up, and tears still on his face, and he goes, "Happy now." And That's that was beautiful. That. And that's, that's, to me, that's one of my favorite little anecdotes because he was two and a half, but he still had an attitude like, okay, all right, that was painful for those 10 seconds, those 15 seconds. We're good. We're ha happy now. Moving right along. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it comes down to essentially how grateful we are to be alive, that, that this is, this is something to be thankful for we just there's just so much to be thankful for the fact that we're alive the fact that hashem gave us the capabilities that we have okay he can't walk but he can go in his walker and he can you know push things around he might not be able to do this but he'll be able to do that you know there's there's just an attitude that that the focus on the fact look at what, what i do have look at the fact that i'm here look at my capabilities. And as a result of that, he maximizes his capabilities. And all of us need to have that same kind of appreciation. The fact that we're alive, the fact that we've been given the things that we, we've been given. If we have good health, there's a lot to be thankful about. Um, and we need, to, we need to remind ourselves of that because we get stuck on all the things that we don't have. And we need to remind ourselves of all the things that we do have. And that's how we find happiness and energy and motivation. Right. You so, might hear him partying in the background right now. I, no? Okay. Hardly. So to end this podcast, um, is there, on top of like the millions of things that you brought down, is there any one specific message that you can leave to all our listeners, us as teens tonight? I think that everybody, you know, everybody's got their challenges and, and we don't want to minimize the challenge as they are, because if they're, if this is what Hashem gave you to struggle with, it's not going to be easy. So it doesn't make a difference what it is. Um, but when we, when we look at things from a, a higher perspective, when we look at things from, from a deeper perspective, it really does help. 
You can't use that as a weapon against somebody else. It's like, again, telling other people to have bittal. But we can definitely use them ourselves. That when we realize ourselves, okay, chakut is a tool for me to use within myself. And it's a, it's a, as a tool, I need to learn how to use it. I need to, you know, make sure that I'm using it correctly and appropriately. Um, but when we take these ideas and chassidus and use them as tools, it really, really helps with the struggles because it, it really reframes everything and it helps us. It just clarifies everything. So that's my, um, <clears throat> that's really what the advice that I have advice or uh, the, the feeling I'd like to share with everybody is to realize that what you're learning in chassidus is not just to get a good grade and to go get, you know, go to a better seminary and whatever it is. That's, 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 that's garbage. That, those things really don't make a difference. Nobody is going to care what your grades are in 10th grade, 11th grade in five years from now. And nobody's going to care what seminary you went to in four years, five years from now. But what is most important is that you take these ideas and learn how to use them as tools because that will make a better person out of you that will make life much easier and much more meaningful and much more beautiful. Well, definitely very much relatable to us as teens. <laughs> so thank you so much, Rabbi Estrin. You're truly, truly inspiring. Um, I can't, I really can't describe how much you and your family story has like really changed me and how I'm thinking right now. And yeah. Thank you so much to everyone who joined us this week. Tune in next week on Sunday at 9 to hear more about how to make Tara and Chassidus practical to us nowadays. Have a great night, everyone. Thanks for having me. All the best. Thank you.